Hey everyone, Justin here from Eerie Earfuls. We're bringing this old podcast back, and to prepare for the big return, we're re-releasing our old episodes every two weeks until we catch up. These were originally recorded in 2018, so the references are going to be a little out of date. Also, the earlier episodes have some occasional sound or editing issues as we figured out our process, which I've tried to fix or mitigate if possible. Personally, I still think they sound pretty good, but we definitely got better as we went along. I hope you enjoy these older episodes and expect us to start dropping new ones sometime in July or August. Stay scared, everyone. Hey everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls. Is Tamara here? Every two weeks we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Justin. And I'm Brandon. Let's get to today's double feature. The person picking the double feature rotates from episode to episode, and this week was my pick. And I chose The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and Gremlins 2. So let's pop in the synopsis tape. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a 1986 horror comedy directed by Toby Hooper and written by L.M. Kit Carson. It's the sequel to The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, also directed by Toby Hooper and co-written with Kim Henkel. Thirteen years after the events of the first film, two high school seniors, Buzz and Rick, are killed by Leatherface while they're on the phone with local radio DJ Stretch Brock. The following morning, Lieutenant Lefty Enright, uncle of Sally and Franklin Hardesty, the victims from the previous film, arrives at the scene of the crime. He spent 13 years investigating mysterious chainsaw murders occurring throughout Texas. He's contacted by Stretch, who has a recording of the attack. He asks her to play the tape on her radio show to lure the killers out. Leatherface and his brother Chop Top arrive at the station to stop the broadcast, attacking Stretch's producer, LG. Leatherface spares Stretch, but takes LG back to his place to slaughter him. Lefty and Stretch follow them, Lefty using his own chainsaws to destroy the family's hideout while Stretch is captured, tied up, and forced to wear LG's face. LG frees her before dying of his injuries, but Stretch is captured again and forced to join the family for dinner. Lefty arrives and battles Leatherface. The leader accidentally sets off a grenade that only Chop Top and Stretch survive. He chases her to the top of a tower where Stretch kills Chop Top with a chainsaw. The film ends with Stretch swinging her chainsaw in an homage to Leatherface from the first film. Gremlins 2, The New Batch, is a 1990 horror comedy film directed by Joe Dante and written by Charles S. Haas. It's the sequel to Gremlins, also directed by Joe Dante and written by Chris Columbus. After the death of his owner, Mr. Wing, the Mogwai Gizmo becomes the guinea pig of scientists at Clamp Enterprises, a state-of-the-art office building in Manhattan run by eccentric billionaire Daniel Clamp. Gizmo is soon rescued by his friends Billy and Kate, both of whom work for the company. Left to his own devices, water accidentally spills on Gizmo's head, generating four new Mogwai. The Mogwai run amok in the building, terrorizing patrons and eating after midnight, which causes them to transform into gremlins. Gizmo is captured and tormented by Mohawk while the other gremlins set off fire sprinklers, resulting in a gremlin army. They break into the science lab and begin ingesting experimental genetic material, causing many of them to transform further. Murray, Billy's neighbor, visiting from Kingston Falls, sneaks inside to help. Mohawk ingests a spider serum, transforming into a half-gremlin, half-spider monster. He attacks Kate, but Gizmo kills him with a flaming arrow a la Rambo. Billy gathers all of the gremlins in the lobby, hoping the sunlight will kill them, but it begins to rain. 
Thinking quickly, Billy tells Murray to spray them all with water and unleashes a gremlin that has transformed into pure electricity. The gremlins are electrocuted and killed, melting into goo. The film ends with Mr. Clamp promoting Billy and Kate before the two return home with Gizmo. Okay, Brandon, so why did you pick these two movies? I thought these movies would pair well together because they are both sequels of classic movies. They're both sequels directed by the director from the original, and both sequels reference and parody the original. So that's a really interesting way to pair these two movies together. Uh, I did notice a lot of interesting similarities considering that they're both sequels. They're both very critical of 80s culture, different types of 80s culture, because one is more mid-80s and one is the very late 80s, because it technically comes out in 1990. And they both are obviously parodies of the concept of sequels, about how they're supposed to be bigger and flashier and just more outrageous than the original. And both take that concept to just a fantastic new level. So, I guess to start, I'd kind of like to talk a little bit about how Gremlins 2 is parodying the original Gremlins. It's going to be kind of tough because there's not only there's a whole bunch of references to the original Gremlins, but there's also a whole bunch of just Hollywood and pop culture references in general, and they become so much to the point where it's almost hard to, like, distinguish them. But I'm going to try. Gremlins 2, just FYI, the first Gremlins came out in 1984, I believe. Warner Brothers and Joe Dante kind of thought that Gremlins 2 was almost too late in coming out because it came out in 1990. They thought it might not do as well at the box office. But they were wrong. It performed well. It didn't get reviewed as well as the original Gremlins. But, you know, the original Gremlins also had problems with reviews because of its dark comedy nature. And it wasn't even supposed to be originally done by Joe Dante. It was passed around to a whole bunch of different people and screenwriters. And finally, Warner Brothers went to Joe Dante with an ultimatum saying, you make this movie, you can literally make anything that has gremlins in it that's from 90 to 120 minutes and we'll distribute it. And he was like, okay. So he <laughs> met up with Charles. <laughs> he met up with Charles Haas. And they basically like wrote the whole thing on index cards and put a little storyboard together of what on earth they could possibly do. And one of the big things that he really wanted to do was to make a comment about how sequels are largely arbitrary and how he didn't want to make a sequel to Gremlins because <laughs> he kept saying over and over again, I don't want to make a sequel because I feel like the story stands alone. But they kind of did it anyway. So he was like, all right, I'm going to give them like a big fuck you about how pointless sequels are and it's clearly evident through the whole movie so both of the movies start with the almost exact same situation in the original gremlins billy peltzer's dad is in the chinese shop and he's looking around trying to find something interesting anyway essentially bartering for some kind of object which in the first movie is gizmo in the second one, it's way more exaggerated, obviously, because it is an entire corporation and they bring in, like, they don't even bring in the CEO, they bring in, like, a TV set with a pre-recorded tape of his offer, and he is also bartering to get control of that section of land so that he can build his Chinatown mall thing. So both movies start with the same scenario in the same shop, and they both kind of resolve that in the same way. Like, it's, it's, it's not up to Mr. Wing's plan because in the original Gremlins, he didn't want to sell Gizmo to that guy, and it was his little grandkid person that kind of sold him under the table. 
And in Gremlins 2, he didn't get a choice either because he died. And so the plot of land was just taken over. So in both cases, Mr. Wing was thwarted. I guess his grandson must have sold it. Yeah. Because, like, that kid doesn't show up in this movie. So I, I guess that his parents were just yeah, like, we don't pretty want much. That. I don't even think, I mean, even in the first Gremlins, he clearly did not care about the shop. He didn't care about working there. He just needed to get, he wanted to get more money in there for his grandfather. Had he shown up in the second one, I feel like he would have been an advocate for sell, sell, sell. Um, they cover the rules, and in Gremlins 2, it's hilarious because they mention how it's always awkward in a sequel where you have to reestablish certain rules, but you have to do it in a conversational way. So their idea of getting around that in the second one was to have the two actors <laughs> improvise a scene where they cover the rules. And basically, they just told them, just mention the rules. And so they come up with this really hilarious scene where he's where Bill is meeting Kate in this weird tour guide locker room thing. And he's like, oh, by the way, I found Gizmo. I'm going to take him home. And then they start doing this ad lib thing where they're like trying to remember the rules. Like, oh, yeah, what is it? Uh, don't feed him after midnight. And then what was the thing about uh, uh, water? Yeah, they're not supposed to get wet. That whole scene is supposedly improvised, and it's very effective because they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Uh, rules, rules, blah. Yeah, I like that. I like that they, um, <laughs> I like the way that she's, like, irritated yes. with him about it. She's just like, oh, God, I don't, yeah, okay, it's this and this and this, whatever. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I love that part, and because it's the same tone that the writers and director had, too. They were just like, yeah, 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 fucking rules, whatever. We got them covered. And then in uh, Gremlins 2, they proceed to uh, subvert that concept with this whole extended sequence where Billy is in this security control room, and he's trying to explain to these people why they should shut the building down, and they're all... Like poking holes in all the rules, which <laughs> <Yes>. is <laughs> I love that. Which is a, I love a that. direct inspiration. It's always midnight somewhere, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a direct inspiration from the director Joe Dante, and it was because he didn't want to include the rules in the original one because he didn't think that audiences would believe them. But Christopher Columbus was like, "I oh, know we should put him in there because it's in the script or whatever." So they left him in. They became like legend, but then also kids were like sending them fan mail saying, "Oh, so isn't it always midnight? So I guess they can never." And and some of those questions are directly inspired from questions that kids have, like, oh, if they get, you know, like a piece of food stuck in their teeth and then they eat that piece of food after midnight, does that count as eating? And so they just start poking holes in it. And it's one of my favorite moments because it's basically saying this movie doesn't matter. The rules don't matter. <laughs> That's the point of the whole movie, too, is that just, the rules just don't matter. Just shut up matter. and watch the movie. Exactly. God. <laughs> it's literally just like a cash grab, which I assume is how Joe Dante would describe it. They both have a water accident scene where Gizmo accidentally gets wet. And in the original, it's a very smoothly done scene where Billy accidentally knocks over a glass of water and Gizmo gets wet. In this one, it is the most hilariously comical, outrageous thing because this maintenance man is trying to fix the water fountain and it's just shooting jets of water across the room, <laughs> which turns into like a Rube Goldberg machine where it like shoots across the room, hits this easel, which has a drawing done by Bill on it, which then drips down into a tray, and then the tray is slanted, and then the water drips out of the tray, and then onto Gizmo's head. And by the way, that janitor is Gomez Adams from the old Adams Family TV oh. show. <laughs> and he's also from, I think, Return Return of the Killer Tomatoes, and oh he played the, the mad scientist. That's funny. 
But it's just it's just another like commentary on how much bigger sequels have to be. So of course the water accident in the sequel is just this stupid elaborate thing, and he gets wet, and then the new uh, little Mogwai pop out, and of course in the original they were all basically the same. They looked almost exactly like Gizmo except for uh, uh, Stripe. Stripe, and uh, in this one they all look completely different, and they all have very different personalities and are clearly made up to be. The the bad gremlins. And I love how they had to make a new gizmo for this movie, and they had a new effects director, and the person that did gizmo made him so much more expressive and so much cuter. He's got these giant eyes. I thought that he was more expressive, that they had, like, made a better model, because he was way more mobile, like, moving his mouth and stuff. I did notice that the gremlins were also, like, substantially bigger. At one point, someone was like, I hate these little guys. And I was like, little? No, they're... These are, like, toddlers. (laughs) Huge. They they definitely seem bigger than the first one, which is, again, kind of a take on sequels. There's also an homage to the original. So if you remember in the original, one of the deaths of the gremlins is by sticking it in the microwave and cooking it till it blows up. And in this one, the gremlins themselves subvert that by throwing pots and pans into the microwave and blowing up the microwave. So they don't have to deal <laughs> with that again, even though none of them Fuck would have fucking remembered it because none of them were in the first one. <laughs> There's also the concept of these inventions that never work. So in the first one... Bill's dad is always making inventions that don't work, and so the family's being terrorized by inventions. And the same thing happens in Gremlins 2 on a way bigger scale, because everything in the building is technologically advanced, but it keeps breaking down around Bill, and so he's constantly (laughs) having to deal with a giant office building that's always breaking down around him. I did. I never realized that it was breaking down specifically around yeah. Bill, but I love the idea that his family is just technologically cursed, <laughs> and it just follows him everywhere. It does. Oh man! I remember he was going through the normal doors, and then those rotating doors started freaking out and spinning, and like flung that guy inside. Yep. And then later, they're still working yep. on it. Whenever he like halfway through the movie, he comes back by, and they're still in the process of trying to fix it. <laughs> The whole reason Kate hates Christmas is because her father got stuck in the chimney and suffocated and died on Christmas. And it was such like a weird, morbid, <laughs> strange moment. And, they, and out of yes, nowhere. And they make fun of it so mercilessly in Gremlins 2 because one of the characters mentions Abraham Lincoln's birthday and she goes, oh, I don't even want to think about Abraham Lincoln or his birthday. And she launches into this funny story about how she was like, At least from what I read. I don't know if she actually got to finish the story, but it's a story about how she was a kid and this person who was dressed up as Abraham Lincoln flashed her. And then all the characters around her start like rolling their eyes and they're like, no, 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 let's not do this now. It's it's just weird. And they just completely start (laughs) negating it. I love that in the first one, because in the first one, when you're watching it, your jaw just kind of falls open and you're like, Kate, time and place. There are there's things going on. We don't need to hear about your childhood trauma right now. When the original Gremlins came out, obviously it was rated PG because during that time, there was no PG-13 rating. It just went G, PG, R, NC-17, and X, I guess. No, not even NC-17. I think it went straight to X. Just R and X. Um, And so, um, (laughs) and Gremlins is one of the reasons why the PG-13 rating even exists. It's actually a combination of Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. There's a funny story that gets mentioned in Gremlins 2 that actually happened to Joe Dante at one of the screenings for Gremlins. 
this mom took her child out of the theater and marched up to him. And she was like, I'm not going to let my child watch this movie anymore. This is supposed to be a family-friendly movie. It's PG, and it's just disturbing. I think that happened right after the blender scene where the gremlin got blended up. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom actually got released with a PG-13 rating, um, but that was only after the MPAA was like, all right, we've got to have some middle ground between PG and R. Because if you watch some early movies that have a PG rating, it's kind of surprising that, you know, they didn't think of this sooner. It's crazy to me that PG-13 was so edgy at the time. Because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the reason they gave it a PG-13 rating is because at the end of Temple of Doom, the, like, priest shaman is calling out to their god, Kalima. He reaches his hand inside uh, someone and rips their heart out. And that was what PG-13 was back then. (laughs) And, like, PG was still pretty heavy. Now you've got, like, Kung Fu Panda was PG. And, and like, most PG-13 movies are sort of, like, some sometimes really hyper-violent, but very bloodless. And everyone, they just get shot with a nice clean hole, fall down, and then they're dead. Yeah. So uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 also had similar struggles with the MPAA. The first one, Toby Hooper thought that he was going to shoot for a PG rating, yes. which is sort of hilarious now because <laughs> the movie's considered so dark. Although I guess I can see where he was coming from considering there was no PG-13 rating. Right. And his movie is very bloodless. Like the horror from that movie kind of comes from the implied violence. They, they, they never actually even explicitly state in the first movie that they're eating humans. It's all implied. But there's a long tradition of slasher movies um, having issues with the MPAA and getting cut down. And so the original Texas Chainsaw, you know, got an R rating eventually. Texas Chainsaw 2, they did not apparently even bother. Now, that's not to say that Toby Hooper didn't try for an R rating, but Texas Chainsaw 2 is way, way bloodier and gorier than the first one. Much like Gremlins 2 sort of ups the ante and makes everything crazy and over the top, Texas Chainsaw 2 does the same thing. One, it had a bigger budget, and it looks like it. It's slick, it's brightly colored, it's got nice contrast. It's It's a gorgeous movie, especially uh, I own the Scream Factory version. Yes, I do too. The restoration is is gorgeous. And you can can tell Carrie White put a whole bunch of work into all that set design and production design. Oh yeah. But anyway, uh, the, the gore is especially gory, and he did that intentionally. Toby Hooper was shooting for an R rating, but whenever he finally got a cut of the movie together and he submitted it to the MPAA, they said, don't even bother. They, they told him that he was going to get an X rating and that there was literally nothing he could do because the movie was filth from, from start to finish and there was nothing he could do to make it an R rating. So, rather than take an X rating, they just released the movie unrated, which is a serious hampering. And this was before NC-17 existed, so it was they were, they were basically saying, yeah, this wasn't screened for the MPAA. And even the movie trailers, where normally it would say rated R or something, mm-hmm. it just says, due to the nature of this film, people under 17 will not be admitted. But there's no actual rating, because they decided they didn't want to try to cut the movie down, there was nothing they could do, they didn't want to take an X rating, so they just, they just didn't. This movie superficially does not follow the plot of the first one, but structurally it hits a lot of the same beats. 
the movie starts with the same sort of like stripped down, very serious reading, and it's not John Larroquette in this one. It's I, th- I think it's somebody else, but they're they're like back in 1973, there was a brutal attack on Sally. Blah blah blah. She escaped mm-hmm. from hell, and it's a very serious reading. But even then, the first one is presented almost like a documentary. It's almost like this is a thing that happened. And isn't the text from the second one even longer than the it text is? That's from the first that's what I meant. It's more overwritten. It talks about how Sally escaped out of a window from hell and she wakes up and she starts screaming and then she passes out and in the 13 years that have intervened the Texas Chainsaw Massacre fades into legend and like it's presented in the same sort of realistic way but it's written more overwrought and then the next thing you see is two douchebags driving and then they get (laughs) murdered by Leatherface but it like in the first one, when Leatherface attacks, it feels so brutal because there's very little music in the original. There's not a lot of, like, sound design. So, like, when Sally is standing on the porch and they get attacked by Leatherface, it was one of the most harrowing moments for me. Just because dude just pops out of nowhere, grabs her. It's such a quiet moment. There's not, like, a musical sting, and so it feels more realistic. And in this one, Leatherface is standing on the front of a truck with another corpse tied to him, dancing <laughs> to make the corpse yeah. dance. Stubby. <laughs> uh, Nubbins, I believe oh, is yeah, his Nubbins. name. And that's the name of the hitchhiker from the first one. Um, he got hit by a truck, I think, at the end of the last one. And so he's they still keep him around. You know, he's yeah. still part of the family. Yep. And his brother is instead in the movie. And his <laughs> name is Chop Top because he went to Vietnam. And a Vietnamese soldier axed him in the head and cut off part of his head. So now he has a metal plate to replace part of his skull. I love his insults. Like, lick my plate. <laughs> yep. Lick my plate, Lick my you, plate dog dick. you dog dick. <laughs> <laughs> the, the hitchhiker's performance in the original is supposed to be funny. Toby Hooper said that there was supposed to be moments of humor, that like Drayton is supposed to be humorous, that like the family dinner scene is supposed to be kind of funny at times. The hitchhiker's performance is supposed to be funny. Franklin's stuff is supposed to be funny, but nobody got it because the rest of the movie was so scary that people just were like horrified the whole time. In this one, he decided to up the humor to more extreme levels to make sure everyone understood it was supposed to be funny. So Bill Mosley's performance is insane, <laughs> way over the top. He kind of like bounces back and forth because of his, his head injury. He, at times, he's like really angry at Leatherface and then he sort of like turns on a dime and is like, <laughs> did, did you get her? Did you get her, Bubba? Did you get her? <laughs> you, you, you hit my plate, you dog dick. You hit my plate. Anyway, did you get her? Like Fantastic. (laughs) The turn on a dime moments are amazing. And it's so manic. Like the ending, when the family is all together, it's like they're having two different conversations at the same time. Because Drayton is constantly railing about taxation and the government and always trying (laughs) to hurt the lower class. And meanwhile, Bill Mosley's character Chop Top is just literally screaming, Nom land, nom land. (laughs) And like dancing. It's madness. If it were just the villains, that would be one thing. But like everyone's performance is so over the top. Dennis Hopper plays a former Texas Ranger. He was related to Sally and Franklin, and he's trying to find them. And he, when he finds their hideout, just starts screaming, Bring them all down! Send them back to hell! And he starts just chainsawing support beams to, like, tear their underground location down. And he is I love it. insane. He dual-wields chainsaws at one point in the movie. Like, it's yes. just nuts. Leatherface's mask is different in the first one. He's like, it's more of like dried out skin and it looks more parchmenty and and leathery like Leatherface. And in this one, it's like a 
puzzle mask. It's all pieced together yeah. from different faces, and it's so much gorier, and there's, like, big, ugly stitches on it. Whenever Leatherface is attacking someone, he does this thing where he holds the chainsaw above his head and does, like, waggles his yeah. head back and forth and does this, like, dance. Constantly. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and he does that. <laughs> scream. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. It's it's just like <sighs> so so over the top compared to the original. And there's there's not a lot of specific callbacks to the original. There's not like a hey, remember this scene? Here it is again. But there's moments that feel like they're referencing like um when the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, slashers weren't really a thing yet because it came out in the 70s and it was arguably one of the first proper slashers. It was sort of like the slasher formula in its most crystallized, perfect form. There had been proto-slashers like Alice Sweet Alice and uh, When a Stranger Calls, but those weren't really slashers yet. We hadn't reached that level. By the time Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 came out, and it was like 13 years later, a lot had been said about the slasher genre. Halloween had come out. Friday the 13th had come out. This was in the, the like heyday of the big, strong guy attacks small, fragile woman. Hmm. And uh, I believe it was Carol Clover had already written her sort of like study on the sort of Freudian analysis of slashers. So slashers, generally, there's like a virginal woman character who she's very young. She's usually very attractive. And uh, the male slasher character is usually masked, big, strong, representative of this like patriarchy, hyper-masculine world. They're usually very strong. They kill people, tending to favor phallic objects. The murder scenes are meant to be very rape-like scenes. And then uh, there's a turn in the movie where the final girl obtains the phallus and sort of takes on more masculine qualities and then manages to end the killer's spree. Toby Hooper read this. I was going to say, he he had to have he known did. it. Because <laughs> so there's a scene where when he first attacks uh, Stretch, Leatherface and Chop Top break into the radio station and Chop Top attacks Stretch's producer, LG. And there's this great moment where there's a match cutting thing going on where Leatherface is attacking Stretch and he's picking up his chainsaw and slamming it down in this cooler, like a a bin of ice and drinks oh and he's slamming it down and then it'll cut to chop top slamming his hammer down on lg and then it'll cut to leatherface slamming his saw down again and then cut to chop top slamming his hammer down again there's a moment where the camera zooms in on a close-up of stretch and she screams and like holds her hands in front of her face and like waves them like and then it cuts to chop top who stands up and goes and like waves his hands in front of his face before he smashes lg again but then toby hooper was like hey you know how slashers are supposed to be like subtly sexual and sort of phallic well what if i just did that so leatherface holds his hilariously long chainsaw (laughs) down into the ice cooler thing and then begins pelvic thrusting and thrusting his chainsaw forward like he's humping the ice thing yes and then it gets even more explicit because he specifically aims his chainsaw at her crotch and it's a it's a weird inversion of the original because in the original movie that's not there like you can read maybe into that with the like phallic symbol of the chainsaw but it's almost explicitly asexual Mm -hmm. there's a moment when sally is at the dinner table during the family dinner scene and uh uh, this is actually there's a great episode of the faculty of horror that you should listen to if you if you haven't where they talk about the texas chainsaw massacre and the remake and uh, you should absolutely listen to it if you haven't and they they bring this up as well there's this moment where she says (laughs) 
thing. And like oh, she's I clearly about that. implying yeah. that she'll have sex with them if they'll let her go. And yeah. they mock her for it. They're like, eh, do anything, you let anything. Because they like they don't see her as a person or as sexual. They see her as literally meat to consume right. that they want to eat. And in this one, he inverts that. And instead, Leatherface is working through some clear sexuality issues. She even, she's like, as she's putting her hands up and screaming, she's getting sprayed in the face constantly. Like with each chainsaw thrust. I could not stop laughing through that whole thing. Because it was the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever seen. I, clearly, it was meant to be a commentary on that concept because oh, it was so over the top. And it just kept going. <laughs> like, and I was like, oh my who God. Who needs subtlety when we can just do the thing? <laughs> the last third act is structurally very similar. It Like the whole third act of Texas Chainsaw 2, which is an extended third act, is very similar to the first one where there's this very extended third act that revolves around the family dinner scene. This one's a little more over the top and absurd because instead of just living in some farmhouse, they live in like an old Alamo themed amusement park <laughs> and they're like living underground. They've built like a cathedral of bones from all the people that they have killed. Like they literally have a throne of bones at the table that they put uh, Stretch in for a while. They have the exact same sequence that plays out from the first one where they try to get Grandpa. Grandpa used to be one of the killers in the slaughterhouse. He took the mallet and would, like, club the animal in the head and kill them, supposedly, instantly. And that got phased out, as they point out in the first one, by the hydraulic gun that you would just shoot at the base of the skull and kill the creature. So right. they're, they're trying to get Grandpa to, to sledge her in the first one, and he can't do it because he's too old. And they do the same thing in this one, where they bring out the girl, they put her over this bucket, and they try to have Grandpa sledge her in the head. Only this time... Unlike in the first one, he does actually manage to land a blow, a weak one that doesn't kill her, because they, they even specifically say, Grandpa was the one-hit-kill one kind of guy, and like he can't do it because he's just too old. And then, so the last shot of the movie, Chop Top chases Stretch up to this little cathedral where she finds a chainsaw and kills Chop Top, and the movie ends with a similar shot, but in the first one, Leatherface is almost impotently swinging his chainsaw around out of anger because the girl got away, and in this one, she's like triumphantly but almost half crazy swinging her chainsaw around and screaming because she's won and has come out on top and toby hooper even said that he did that as sort of like a this is the day of the woman the women are now gonna sort of take charge and then they're they, mm -hmm. they've shuffled out the the patriarchy so not so sure about um Texas Chainsaw 2, I know they, they, it makes a lot of commentary on like slasher films in general, obviously, like you were describing with the phallic imagery and the final girl and she's constantly screaming, even though in the Texas Chainsaw 2, she has more agency and they're kind of making similar commentary, as I mentioned earlier, about sequels in Gremlins 2. But they're also bringing in so many pop culture references. And by incorporating them into a sequel, they're making a statement about how all of these classic things that they're referencing don't really have sequels. And when you put them in the context of a sequel, it cheapens them. There is obviously the uh, reference of Mr. Clamp, which is a combination of Ted Turner and Donald Trump. Uh, but in this case... He's played by John Glover, and he gives such a, he imbues it with such a childlike demeanor that it makes the character very lovable. So it kind of makes uh, Christopher Lee the villain in the movie. 
Yeah, it's really weird the way they did that because Clamp is a very obvious sort of nod toward <laughs> Trump. And he uh, yeah. he is obsessed with colorizing things. He, he doesn't want to play any black and white movies because that's what the, the horror host specifically mentions at one point. Like, oh, I'd like to play all the old classic horror movies, but uh, they don't let me play black and white movies here, only color. And then there's a commercial where they're like, we now return to Casablanca, now in color, and with a happier ending. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's so funny. That's a nod to Ted Turner. Ted Turner was, in the 80s, for some reason, really obsessed with colorizing films. He wanted to colorize dozens, if not hundreds, of films that Turner owned the rights to. Directors hated this. Hated <laughs> it. To the point where they actually had a panel before Congress to try to prove that this was a violation of copyright law. They even got a statement from Jimmy Stewart, who there was a colorized version of It's a Wonderful Life, which he described as a bath of Easter egg dye. And then he went on to say, Gloria Graham played a character named Violet. <laughs> I'm sorry. Gloria Graham played a character named Violet. So someone thought that it would be cute to have all her costumes in Violet. This is the kind of, of obvious visual pun that Frank Capra never would have considered. Like, ooh, they hated Ted Turner. Yeah. <laughs> but he's so much more lovable in the context of Gremlins 2, just by how John Glover portrays him. And so they, he was written as the villain with all these Trump and Ted Turner-like qualities. But then when Glover portrayed him the way he did, they realized that was brilliant. They wanted that in the movie. But then they needed a villain. So then, they, of course, they had to ask Christopher Lee, we need you to play this part more menacing and more serious, which is not what he intended to do. He intended to have fun and play it lighthearted. Dr. Catheter. Yes. <laughs> but then he had to play it more serious. And there's a reference to Phantom of the Opera twice. Once where one of the gremlins gets splashed in the face with acid and he holds up this little phantom um, <laughs> thing on his face. And yeah. then the second time when the mask gets ripped off and it is an exact, uh, shot by shot it's a um, restaging they, yes of Lon Chaney's big phantom reveal in the uh, silent film version of Phantom of the Opera and he's playing Bach's Toccata and Fugue which is used a lot for uh, it's a big organ piece you would know it if you heard it the, isn't that um, that like dun, 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 dun. yes that is it and uh, everybody knows that it's very much associated with horror and also Phantom of the Opera for some reason um, I guess because he was an organist, even though I don't think he ever played it in any of those movies. Anyway, but there's that. There's this giant extended New York, New York sequence, which was directly tied to um, the 1980 version of the song New York, New York that Frank Sinatra re-recorded because it was originally recorded by Liza Minnelli. A combination of that and also there's the girl gremlin, which is a commentary and an homage to Busby Berkeley, who did the movie Dames and a lot of these other movies where there's like huge, big choreographed sections of chorus girls. And they, like, move in kaleidoscope patterns and stuff like that. That whole big long sequence is an homage to Busby Berkeley. They also incorporate Gershwin, or Jerry Goldsmith, he also incorporates Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. And Gershwin famously lived in New York and wrote a whole bunch of famous songs uh, while living in New York. So I assume that's why it was included in there. Plus it's, you know, used a lot in funny, goofy, cartoony movies. And uh, there's a, obviously there's a reference to the Wicked Witch of the West when one of the gremlins is melting and is wearing a little pointy hat. And I think all of these things 
are making the comment that a lot of these big movies that people loved and made a big impact were standalone movies. And when they're presented in a sequel context, they can't be recreated and it's just cheapens those effects. There's another sequence that's really interesting where the brain gremlin, his voice is played by Tony Randall, which is actually really interesting because they recorded all of his dialogue before they really started shooting the movie. And they used this technology where they could sync the Tony Randall recording with the actions that the gremlin was doing, their facial actions. Oh. And so and they had it so precise that every time they did a take with that gremlin, it was perfect every time. Like it was perfectly synced every time. They never had a problem with syncing the gremlin with the recording. That's crazy. It was perfect every time. I know, because when you watch it, you're like, God, that had to be really hard. But actually it was the technology that was used for something else. But the guy that was doing the special effects was like, oh, but I could use that to make a gremlin talk. And he did. And it was amazing. <laughs> sure, that's your natural <laughs> jump. It's like using it for important things. Also, what if I could make a gremlin talk? Yep, exactly. And uh, anyway, that's an interesting sequence because he's being interviewed by the vampire guy at the station who has dreams of becoming a newscaster like Cronkite or something. He also and, is a reference. That character is oh, a yes. reference to reference to Al Lewis. Yes. Uh, is it, yeah. Played, uh, yeah. Grandpa. Grandpa. <laughs> yes. He played grandpa in the Munsters or no, the Adams family. No, the Munsters. Oh, the Munsters. OK. Um, anyway, so he's interviewing the brain gremlin and the brain gremlin is talking about what they want and he's saying we just want to be civilized we just want to be treated like everybody else and contribute to society and you know he's doing tony randall is doing his fantastic ivy league voice and during that moment they're playing the audio of that interview while they're panning over what the rest of the gremlins are doing and they're just like trashing the place ridiculously and i think it's a very clear commentary on humans because <laughs> That's what we do. We always talk about how we're the superior species because we're civilized and we have agency and free will and yada yada. And yet we proceed to trash everything that we are around. And so it's, I think that particular scene is a commentary on that as well. There were lots of weird spoofs on, on not just like specific properties, but on just like the culture at the time. Like that, that weird thing with the health food where oh, they were at yeah. the... They were at the like a, a frozen yogurt place or a soft serve place. Yes. And the gremlins are. And the, you know, that's actually more of a 90s thing. So they were a little bit ahead of their time because the big frozen yogurt boom and the more natural foods boom became a bigger thing in the early 90s. And this movie was filmed in like 88, 89, but didn't, you know, wasn't released until 90. So that was actually a little bit ahead of its time and worked out well. Especially, yeah, that scene where she's ordering frozen yogurt and she's like, are the peanut butter cups all natural? Yeah. <laughs> And that juxtaposed with the microwave cooking lady who's making like the bean dip and bologna roll-ups and <laughs> make me want to puke. And, and specifically always, always specifying processed cheese like product yes. or something like that. She never actually says cheese. It is always like cheese product. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 has sort of a different thing that it's taking on than the first one. The first Texas Chainsaw Massacre is sort of a, not necessarily a critique, but a sort of meditation on hippie culture. The kids that get attacked by Leatherface and his family are hippies. Hippie culture was a response partially to the Vietnam War. It spawned partially out of the sort of beatnik generation, but the beatnik generation was very cynical. It was very cold. In a way, it was almost like the irony culture that we have in the like late 90s. 
the the hippie generation was more about joy. They were partially sort of fueled on by the Vietnam War. Like it wasn't just all happy-go-lucky nonsense because they explicitly opposed war. They didn't think that war was necessary. They felt that the Vietnam War in particular was unjust. A lot of people dodged the draft because they didn't feel like it was a just war and unnecessary, which was very different than the reaction the country had back during the World Wars 1 and 2. Their, their culture was more about freedom of, of expression and freedom for the individual. They supported abortion rights a lot. They were a very left-leaning cultural movement. And then a lot of the people, not everyone, but a lot of the people who were so optimistic and so, like, believed so strongly that they were going to make a change, uh, they didn't. They got sort of crushed under the boot of capitalism. And uh, in a way, there's this tone in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre that's almost like a critique of that. So you've got these idealistic hippies that are traveling through Texas, and they come across a family, and this, this backstory for the Drayton family, which is confirmed in the second one, is that they were a family that worked in the slaughter business, and their jobs were replaced with automation. So the constant drive to, like, automate things, uh, similar to in Gremlins 2, uh, their jobs for, like, killing animals were replaced by, like, pneumatic guns, and they didn't need those hammers anymore, and they were sort of somewhat phased out of that industry, because it came, became a lot more automated. And so you've got this lower-class family that's sort of downtrod, and they clash against this sort of naive, optimistic group, and they just, they just slaughter them. In the sequel, hippies aren't a thing anymore, and Toby Hooper knew that, and uh, he specifically mentions that he was sort of critiquing yuppie culture, and yuppies are different than hippies. They were a very 80s phenomenon. It's actually an acronym that stands for either Young Urban Professional or Young Upwardly Mobile Professional. Yuppies were young people in their 20s or 30s, usually men, found themselves, especially in the, like, coastal cities and in the business world, especially in New York, making a lot of money. This was the time of Wall Street. Suddenly, there were these young people that had a bunch of money. This was not indicative of the time, because the 70s and 80s were actually uh, recessions. Uh, the 70s had a post-Vietnam recession that really hurt the economy, and in the 80s, that was exasperated by Reagan. Reagan argued that he could fix the recession by cutting taxes on the wealthy, and that the more money the wealthy made, the more money they were able to save from taxes, the more would trickle down to the lower class people, because the rich people would invest their money in the economy, which would come back to the poor people, and then the poor people would have more money, and they would invest their money in the economy, and so it would all boost everything. It did not. <laughs> surprise, surprise. It ballooned the deficit from like $75 million to like $175 million or something like that. Like it, the deficit exploded under Reaganomics and under trickle-down economics. The unemployment rate rose during the 70s and 80s. So on the one hand, the media tended to focus on these young, wealthy men, but that wasn't really indicative of the time in a similar way to the way the media currently focuses on tech startups, on young West Coast guys who, who make a bunch of money like Mark Zuckerberg and like the people who started Uber and stuff like that who are sort of like creating these disruptive industries. The, the 80s were very much like that too, where they focused on, this, uh, on these, these wealthy young men making a lot of money, living this really garish lifestyle. And Toby Hooper's opinion of this type of generation is evidenced by the yuppies that start the film. I mentioned they were douchebags. I feel like I need to mention it again. <laughs> One of the guys is literally driving down the road and just shooting out of his open window with a pistol, shooting road signs. They keep calling into the radio station and tying up the line and just screaming vulgarities at this young woman. They're on their way to a Texas OSU, I think is what, maybe? No, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a game. <laughs> I'm not a sports guy. 
but they're on their way to a big Texas football game in Dallas, and um, on the way, they're assholes. And uh, you can tell they're rich because they've got this nice car. It's a convertible, I believe. Um, yeah, it's a Mercedes. Yeah, it's a Mercedes. They're both wearing the like rich guy sweaters over <laughs> collared shirts. They've got a car phone so that they can call in <laughs> while they're on the road. Like, clearly symbols of wealth and douchebaggery. And they nearly run headlong into a truck that's parked on the bridge. And they honk at them and call them pig fuckers. And uh, then Leatherface kills them. Uh, saws off one guy's head. And uh, they continue to reference that throughout the movie. We're first introduced to Drayton in this movie having won a chili competition. What the family specifically does to make money in Texas Chainsaw 2 is he has a food truck that he travels around with and they sell this food to yuppies. So they not only travel across the state killing yuppies, they then take them, slaughter them, put them in their food, and sell it back to them. And they specifically mention in the last act of the movie whenever Stretch is sneaking around and trying to find a way out. They specifically mention that they're losing money because while Lefty has been going around destroying their property, they don't know who is doing it, they just know that their property is suddenly falling apart. Drayton is ranting about the fact that they aren't making any money, they should be at that game selling food to this big run of of young people, but they can't because they're busy trying to fix up their property. So it's it's just an interesting dwell on the, the way they are sort of killing yuppies and then selling them back to other yuppies. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the music. So what's uh, really interesting about the music between the two is they're making a uh, commentary on the previous one and also the movie itself. Both the score to Gremlins and Gremlins 2 was done by Jerry Goldsmith. And in the first one, he scores the movie with a lot of like synthesizers. It's much more stripped down. It's very synthy and kind of cartoony. And I think, you know, there was a purpose for that. And then in Gremlins 2, he takes the opposite effect. He takes out, so there's still some synth stuff, but a lot of it is orchestrated with an actual full orchestra. And it makes the score, like, bigger and brighter and shinier and more classy. Obviously, it's making a commentary of like, this is the bigger Gremlins movie, you know. Uh, Another funny thing is like, it's also referencing like the 80s and the composer is essentially parodying himself because there's a sequence (laughs) where Gizmo gets tired of being tortured and goes to kill the spider Gremlin. And when he does that, he puts a red bandana around his head and shoots a flaming arrow at him, which I believe happens in either First Blood or First Blood 2. That's something that Rambo does. And it's funny because Jerry Goldsmith also did the music for either First Blood or First Blood 2. I don't remember. But he did the music for one of the Rambo movies and created like a Rambo theme. So when he did that sequence, instead of just putting the Rambo theme in there, he took Gizmo's theme and rewrote it in the style of the Rambo theme. So it put it in a Rambo-like context. Very funny, and obviously making fun of himself, but also making fun of the movie. It's it's very well done. And in comparison, um, they kind of do the same thing with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I know uh, I had a small quibble with something you said earlier. Um, 
you said something about there being not a lot of music cues, which technically, yes, I don't think there are a ton of music cues. But Toby Hooper had a hand in both the composition for the score of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, and part two. But the first was not really a score. It was something that Toby Hooper liked to play around with, which is the idea that a whole bunch of composite sounds could create the soundtrack to something. And that is a style of music. It's a very abstract, avant-garde style of music known as music concrete, which is like a French style of music that was developed in the early 20th century. Except it's different because music concrete is supposed to be making a sculpture out of sound almost. Like there was a famous exhibit where you would like go into this big cone looking thing and there were hundreds of these speakers around and each one of these speakers is playing a slightly different sound at a different volume or a different timbre or something. And standing in a specific spot within that cone would create a musical sculpture or a sculpture made out of sound. But it was like a piece of music made out of a bunch of random sounds done digitally, which is, you know, one of the first uses of digital music. And they apply the same technique to the score of the original uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a lot of like metallic banging sounds and they even use like a modified dulcimer and they put like screws and stuff in it to make it sound like twangy and and create these weird sounds and also the camera flash sound. It's a very closely guarded secret between Toby Hooper and the guy that helped him with the music on the first one. Um, I don't think in any of the interviews that I've read they've revealed how that sound was achieved but it's apparently an easy sound to achieve. So anyway, it, it's it's very much in that style and it very much makes the movie because there's not a lot of gore and it's all like implied what's happening off screen. And so if that music wasn't there in specific moments, I think that movie would be really boring because it, there would just be like no sound. It's the same thing that happened with Halloween, actually, where I read an interview with some of the cast of Halloween and during the filming, John Carpenter claimed that he had no idea what the score was going to be and did some test screenings of Halloween for audiences and for studio executives. And they didn't really like it. And they didn't think it was that scary. So his last big shot of getting this movie like distributed was like, well, I need to add a score. So he like locked himself in this room and created this score to the movie Halloween. And it was actually something he had written several years before. He was just playing around with 5-4 time. And he was like, oh, I could do these octave jumps in 5-4 time and it sounds kind of cool. And then I could add a bass line. And that's basically all he did for the score to Halloween. But that little bit of effort to do that completely changed the tone of the movie to where it's very scary and very tense and it completely completely makes the movie and people remember that soundtrack. So without the music in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it would make it very boring to watch, far less tense. Also, the sounds that they compile in that movie are very metallic and they're supposed to mimic the sounds that an animal might hear while being in a slaughterhouse. The second one, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, the score is completely different because it is almost all exclusively synthesized strings. And I hated it. Like the first time I, I didn't actually watch the movie. I watched a clip of it on YouTube to kind of see what the tone was before I actually watched the movie. And it featured this terrible synthesized string 
section and i was like what is this this is horrible (laughs) um and it's that's kind of it's it's playing with the idea that a lot of these famous slasher films like halloween and like a lot of the movies from the 80s have these extremely synthesized scores so in a way it's kind of parodying that and also there is a couple of moments where it pays um, it's like an homage to Bernard Herrmann, who did a lot of, uh, he incorporated a lot of strange instruments into his film scores. He did the film score to Psycho, which include, was just exclusively strings, uh, just string instruments. He also did the film score to The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is the first time that a theremin was used in a film score, which is that weird electronic sounding instrument that makes the noise, that UFO noise. Yeah. And he also did the score to Citizen Kane and I think was one of the first people to use bass flutes. And he used that in the beginning to make this strange, weird, menacing kind of theme on bass flutes, which is really funny. So there's a particular moment that pays homage to him in the driving scene. If you listen to the music in the driving scene uh, where Stretch is chasing the truck with uh, Chop Top and Leatherface down the highway in Texas, if you watch that scene um the headlights and the way it's flashing on her face and the way the cars are oriented it very much mimics the car scene where janet lee is like trying to run away with the money in psycho The music that accompanies that scene is very similar. It's like, it's basically like a parody of Bernard Herrmann's psycho theme. So the so they both pair well together because both movies, Gremlins 2 and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, are parroting the genre score, but also the score from the previous movie, sort of. They complement each other well. And with that, I think that just about does it for today's discussion. Thank you very much for being here today with me, Justin. Yeah, thank you. You can contact us on social media. We would love to hear from you. And we would love to know that you are, you know, listening to the show and liking what you hear. You can find us on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls. Or you can also email us at eerie.earfuls at gmail.com. And visit us on the web at eerieearfuls, all one word, dot wordpress dot com. Uh, You can subscribe to us on CastBox and Apple Podcasts. While you're there, give us a review. It helps other people find the show, and it lets us know, you know, how we're doing. Our theme music is Baba Yaga by Kevin MacLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also by Kevin MacLeod. You can find more music at Incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone. I really wanted to do my Christopher Lee impression, but I think I talked my voice out of being able to do it well. (laughs) I'm Dr. Catheter. (laughs) Surprised that we had so much to talk about. I was worried. I was like, these Uh, movies are goofy. We're going to have nothing. (laughs) (laughs) We still managed to record a long time. We recorded a long time. You're going to try to work that in there somewhere, aren't you? Nope. (laughs) Ha 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 